0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland Reconnecting Knowledge and Virtue Visit us at cltexam.com Welcome back to the CLT offices We're glad you're here Today, we're excited to have Dr. Anika Prather, Professor in Classics at Howard University and founder of the Living Water School If this is your first time joining us I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. We have some exciting news here at CLT. In addition to record numbers of test takers, this year we've partnered with an additional 22 colleges across over a dozen states. Details on these partnerships are available on our website and in the show notes. Also, don't forget, applicants to Grove City College will receive a CLT fee waiver if their application is submitted by October 5th. The CLT 10 will also be offered on October 20th. Details on these tests are available in the show notes and on our website at cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation.
1: Welcome to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, Today we have a real treat. Dr. Anika Prather uh, is here with us today. Uh, Dr. Prather has degrees from Howard University, New York University, St. John's College right here in Annapolis, and a PhD from the University of Maryland at College Park in curriculum and instruction. She currently teaches in the Classics Department at Howard University and is the founder of the Living Water School Dr. Prather, Anika, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Anika, you are, I think, the bravest, most courageous soul on Twitter. You have lived and experienced very different worlds. Uh, There's so much I want to ask you about today. You have an incredible life story. But I want to start with this question. Uh, You wrote a powerful, very powerful, and if you're listening to this, you've got to go to the CLT blog and read Anika's three-part essay for the blog titled Classic Learning in Black History. What moments, when you look back in your life and career, took you from viewing classical education skeptically to, to becoming such a passionate advocate for it?
2: It's so interesting. I, I I I tease my parents who were actually the ones who got me into classical education. They discovered it first, and I just thought they were crazy. I hope it's okay if I just give a little bit of Historic background on my own personal journey as a Black woman. Please do. See how I came around. And I hope I am make sure I choose my words carefully, but I just want to be really clear. People probably would still say I'm pretty vocal about my history and my life experiences uh, as a Black person. Uh, but there has been a shift when finding classical education. Before finding classical education, because I had dealt with a lot of racism before coming to St. John's. St. John's was a turning was probably the most major turning point for me. I dealt with so much racism. So there was a lot of distrust with regards to white people um, before then. And, and that comes from, my brother and I both grew up going to Christian schools. I was in Christian schools from pre-K through 12th grade. The, the Christian school I attended from seventh through 12th, I dealt with some racism, but my teachers were just so precious. They gave me new hope, a little bit more hope about those relationships. But there were several Christian schools that I attended that were very openly racist towards Black people. I mean, just saying things in Bible class, you know, Black people are inferior. God made you inferior. And I'm in in class, you know, that they're teaching me this as if it's God's word. Which, I mean, I read the Bible, so I knew it wasn't true, but it was very hurtful. Or teaching you that gospel music is not of God, you know, because you shouldn't have that kind of music. It was just a really awful experience. Unfortunately, those are my younger years. So that is where those seeds of distrust, bitterness, frustration were planted. By the time I got to Riverdale, the distrust was there. I was coming to school in African clothes with a big Afro, even though that's not how everybody looked. I was just very you know, open about being proud of who I am. And I still am that way. But I, I experienced a lot of love from my teachers, which began to—that was the beginning of the softening of my heart—and um, and so then I, you know, I go on through school and I go to Howard University, which you know pretty much sealed the deal with me and my loving my race and my culture. But one thing about Howard University is that you have to study different classics there, as it's a requirement to study. Like I study Agamemnon, like a lot of the Greek plays, Shakespeare, and I, I enjoyed it, and I, that kind of opened my heart. But I didn't understand that that was classical. Well, fast forward even farther, and my parents happened to see a pamphlet at a retreat center about classical education. And I, I tell my mom, I believe it really was God. I mean, because like instantly they saw the pamphlet, and like, oh, we're starting a Christian school. We're starting a classical school. And I remember thinking, we need to be teaching our people about our race and our culture and our experience and our history and African history, you know, which is true. But I think we, we really hurt our young people who, you know, if we're going to live in America when we don't teach them all history. And so so I was in public school. I thought they were crazy. They're having board meetings like every week for almost two years, I think, and just planning this. And they're just working hard. And my mom is like, you know, you know, you can come work at the school. I'm like, girl, I'm making about $50,000 a year. And I'm in a more open-minded public school. I'm good. Like, that's okay. And then I I had to teach a class in my public school, uh, a sex education class to fifth graders. That was so antithetical to everything I believed, couldn't take it. And I don't, I'm, I am a strong believer that you should obey the laws of the land. So I said, I'm not going to be able to obey these laws. So I got to get out of here. So I quit after that year. I ended up teaching for them, but I said, I'm not into your philosophy. I'm just teaching music and theater part time while I figure out what my next path is. But, you know, after a few weeks in the school and seeing the great books class and then getting involved with the crazy. Books class, I would come in and use theater activities and music to help the students engage in the literature, which means I had to read the literature so I could create my lesson plans, which sucked me in. And the next thing you know, I'm saying, I've got to take a workshop so I can just really engage in this literature, which led me to St. John's. I did a search and I ended up getting my master's in four summers at St. John's in their GI program. And the final thing that I think was just healing for me is St. John's is a predominantly white school and you have this curriculum called the Great Books, or which is a mixture of uh, contemporary and ancient texts. You know, they focus a lot more on the ancient. And it wasn't that the curriculum was changed. It wasn't that someone said, hey, there's a black person. Let's try to make this more relevant. Like no one did that. It was just warm. And it was just a feeling, which seems to be the spirit of what classical education should be. It was just an openness. There was just a... I see you as an equal human who has something to say at this table that's just as important as what I have to say, and you have to respect what each other says. no one's a, has to cut me off, no one can dominate what I'm saying, no one can try to you know explain what I'm saying in their own like what I say it matters. I think the thing I liked about St. John's is that for once, I was not a black woman, I was just a woman, I was just a human being you know what I mean like when you those labels. Yeah. They can be kind of like burdens, you know, because you're going through this life. And in in my world, I've dealt with all this racism and and that kind of defines everything I see. But when I got to St. John's, that was off the table. And people may hear this and say, well, you know, she wanted to forget her history. That's not I can't forget my history. That's utterly impossible. It was just a nice break just to talk to people. And it's not about race. It's not about political stuff. It's just about our shared humanity that was so such a breath of fresh air for me. And then what happened though is relationships formed with people who may not look like me, may not believe like I do, but these books connected us outside of class and stuff to share my experiences and be heard. And we talked and we talked in healthy ways. And then they talked to me in healthy ways about how they feel. And I was able to not be angry regardless of what they said and listen. And so that's my journey in a nutshell
1: and then you went from there and, and actually did your your phd at the university of maryland on classical education within the the black tradition and had some pushback i remember you telling me oh
2: yeah absolutely um this is one of the reasons why you had to drag me out jeremy kicking <laughs> and screaming uh, i mean actually when i when i finally graduated i put my dissertation in a drawer and was like i'm done with that it was such wow. a miserable experience um when I discovered St. John's and was starting the Great Books class, I had also, I had already gotten accepted to my Ph.D. program. So when I found St. John's, I was like, I can't do a master's and a Ph.D. Like, that's crazy. Like, I can't do that. So I resisted it for a while, but it just kept calling me. So when I found out about St. John's summer, you can do it in four summers. I was like, well, I'll do my Ph.D. during the school year and St. John's in the summers. What began, So when I came in, when I got accepted into my Ph.D. program, I was accepted under the thought that I was going to be researching how the arts can be used in an English class, a high school English class. Well, when I started going to St. John's and what I would do is I would in the and I was teaching part time at the school. So what I would do in the summer is I would go to St. John's. Then whatever I read at St. John's, I would take that, scale it back a little bit, but teach it in the school and use my the creative arts to get them engaged. Well, what began to happen was I began to lose interest in arts and education. And this war in me began um, where I was like, but I've always wanted to research arts and education. I've been studying theater and music and like my master's project was on this. Like, how can I leave something I've been working on all these years and like pick up a whole new topic that's fairly new. Professors noticed my struggle and um, my advisor didn't like the fact that I was interested in classical education because it was, it was starting to be something I've talked about a lot too, but there was this professor who wasn't, she didn't really have much to do with me. I mean, we were kind of in the same office area. I was a grad assistant at Maryland at the time, but she said, I could tell that this is something you're becoming really passionate about. And it's like kind of almost dominating all your conversation changes you're seeing happen in these black students. And they were all from all types of backgrounds, um, but they were engaging with this literature and their lives were changing as a result of it. And she said, you really have to follow your heart. Like don't let these people in our department determine what you do. You have to, cause they have, they've already got their doctorate. They've already followed their passions. You deserve the right to pursue your own. And I felt, I knew that the time I, the moment I made that decision to just focus on, classical education in the black community, it was going to be a really rough time. And I I didn't want to go through that, but I decided to do it. I couldn't shake it. And immediately the pushback began. I mean, I was told you shouldn't get a PhD. I was told, I was told by one professor who I actually worked for, Mm -hmm. these books are not for you. Then my advisor, as I began to start writing, like all of my papers, anything I wrote, was connected to this now. I was very passionate about it by this time. And I had discovered W. E. Du Bois. And I, after that, I was like, really like, no one's gonna change my mind.
1: You know, uh, that's amazing what you just said, that that there was a voice from 100 years ago that was so powerful, it trumped what contemporaries were telling you.
2: Yep. And the phrase on why would you want to do research on a whole bunch of dead white men made yep. me so angry. Because I already had the the essay from Du Bois, I knew there could have been others. So that created the first chapter of my dissertation, which was a short history of classical education in the black community.
1: So you're you're doing your PhD and you're focused there, uh, especially on Du Bois, uh, very much on Frederick Douglass as well. Uh, and what were you seeing there? I mean, what, what was that experience like as you were uh, uh, uncovering this treasure?
2: I was also being questioned my own community like these books aren't for us that's those 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 books are from the colonizer those are from our slave masters they were used to oppress us they they support white supremacist ideals you know and I'm reading them at St. John's I'm like I'm, I'm looking I'm like I don't I don't see that like where where is the white supremacy in Aristotle like I don't see it where's is, where's is, where's is Shakespeare talking about that I should be enslaved like I'm just not seeing what they're talking about And I'm seeing this, um, the lie that everyone is believing, every side, every race is believing about this body of knowledge. Then I'm just kind of following that track of Black people in American history who were using the classics to get a better understanding of who they really were. It's how people have misused the books. Like, that's where the attention should be drawn. Yeah. So I began to follow that path from the slaves or the enslaved people. I began to follow it from there to, like, um, Phyllis Wheatley, who, you know, wrote this beautiful first Black woman, I think, to become published. And, and she was an enslaved woman. I go from her to Frederick Douglass, who, um, and his, his, the revelation for him came to me when I toured his house in um, D.C., and you walk in and there's a bust of Cicero. At that time, I had just finally you know, made the decision, I'm going to study this stuff. So when I see Cicero sitting up in the man's foyer, I said, well, if Frederick Douglass is an abolitionist and he has a bust of Cicero in his foyer, I need people to read the books because how does, okay, so you have, then I go into like his parlor, like everything's kind of preserved how he kept it. So then you go into his parlor, And he has a painting of one of Shakespeare's plays. I'm like, okay, y'all, come on. We have to read the books because like he's an abolitionist. He's the one who wrote what to the slave is the 4th of July. Like how can a person like that read? He's reading these texts. So obviously it's not the text.
1: You've only been on Twitter for a couple months. You're you're blowing up on Twitter right now. People are are kind of discovering you. I'm I'm so glad that you're on the platform. But one of the videos you made early on, you were referring to the way that that Uncle Tom this phrase it's used, but they're not people aren't using it in the right way. Can Can you kind of reiterate what were you What were you saying there?
2: Let's just first say that most people have not read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Okay, so most people don't even know who Uncle Tom is. And let's just be honest about that okay so and the reason why i know is because i hadn't read him and i was throwing that phrase around and, and i had no idea who the man was either anyway so we we read i read uncle tom's cabin for my one of my great books classes because we were looking at harriet Beecher Stowe, and you i can see why people have had an issue with him because at first he's like i have a nice master i have my family and i'm just gonna be a good slave as unto the lord and so he's just kind of settled there so that is a problem for most african-american people and so they look at him whereas some people would say oh he's a good christian man he's just obey." the rest of us are like if you don't get on the underground railroad so for us that's a problem but what happens is people usually stop after the first few chapters of the book and what they miss is the ending where you realize he really was not an uncle tom um he, he there was a strength that developed in him so he gets killed spoiler alert if you haven't read it but still read it He's living in this really nice situation with some really nice slave masters, but the slave master had some financial challenges. He had to sell Tom. And Tom is sold away from his wife, his sons, everything he knew. And he ends up in different plantations. He ends up on a plantation with another family that treated him really well, but then the the man dies, and the wife doesn't care too much for Tom, and she sells him to one of the cruelest slave masters known. And so he's there, and... There's another woman who wants to escape and she escapes. Tom knows that she's escaped, knows kind of that, has an idea which direction she's going. And the slave master questions Tom and Tom won't lie, but he won't tell. So then the slave master threatens to beat him. Tom is like, okay, he refuses to tell. And he lets the man beat him to death so that the woman could get to freedom. And the whole time the man is beating him, he just t- he takes it. And he does it to protect the girl, to give her the time to get away, you know, all of that. And so for me, I feel like that doesn't quite sound like Uncle Tom to me, because so, Uncle so Tom was told.
1: This is really powerful. So you're saying Uncle Tom is, is really a Christ figure. He, he's laying his life down for the freedom of another.
2: Yes. I think what people, and they don't realize that. And and so sometimes we refer, and it, it, there's two ways we misuse it. We misuse it. I mean, I'm people, I know people call me Uncle Tom because I love classics. I already know. I think there are two ways that it's misused. The one way is that if you just see a Black person just trying to get a, along, like there, John Lewis was even sometimes accused of when he especially went into politics. I, I haven't heard the word Uncle Tom, but you you hear the language around, him sometimes of people feeling like he's sold out by joining in and working in legislation. One thing I learned about Martin Luther King is you really can't bring the beloved community into being if we all stay in our separate corners or don't come together and work with each other. And so so sometimes people use Uncle Tom for just anyone who's making an effort to build a bridge between the Black and white community. You know, I know there's other diverse groups, but that, you know, honestly, the Black and white community is the one that's having the most friction and has been since the creation of the country. So any Black person who takes efforts to build that bridge uh, can be accused of that oftentimes. There are times, though, when you'll see a Black person, they're not necessarily trying to build bridges, because I feel like a build, when you build a bridge between two separate spaces, one space pretty much stays the same. The other space pretty much stays the same. But you find this way where you can connect, okay? That's a whole nother process. It doesn't mean I'm denying my heritage. It doesn't mean I'm denying the struggles that I go through as a Black person. I'm bringing that with me, but I'm doing whatever I can in love to still build a bridge to you because God wants unity. Like you're doing it most importantly because it's something God wants. So that's one way of dealing with it. But then you have others that people call Uncle Tom because the person is not necessarily trying to build a bridge, they're denying the story of what it means to be African American, they're denying the struggle, they're they're talking bad about their own community as a way to gain favor. For some reason they think that's a bridge. That's not a bridge either. That's not healthy. And so they're often called Uncle Tom. Well, Uncle Tom didn't do that either because When a black person stands up and talks bad about black people, discounts the struggles that we go through all in a way to gain favor. Oh, don't believe what they're saying. That's not true. That's not what Uncle Tom did. Uncle Tom tried to help the runaway slave, but he was able to do it in a way that everyone could respect. So I think it's just all around people misuse Uncle Tom.
1: Anika, a question I have here, and I asked this question the first couple episodes. We, we had Robbie George in the first episode, and then we had Tom Hibbs, who is, a, I know, a connection of yours now at the University of Dallas. We were talking about the role of the great books in uh, building a foundation for unity and civil dialogue. Right now, we all know America is in crisis. Yes. What role can classical education play in healing?
2: Yeah. Jeremy, you follow me. That's why I've said no talking about politics, no talking about this, that, and the other. We're just talking about the great books. It just helps to douse the fire a little bit because we're not listening to each other. And both sides are working very hard to promote a certain reality that they each have. And no one's really listening to the other. And so it's distressing to watch. What great books does is it takes all of those hot button topics off the table. And all you have left is the story of humanity, the story of truth, of beauty, of virtue. That's all you have. And that's all you're allowed to talk about. See, one of the rules of St. John's is you cannot really talk too much about your personal life. You can only talk about the text. But what happens is as you're talking about the text, All of you all gain these life lessons that do touch you personally. And then it also leads to discussions outside of the class time where you can come together personally. But this it kind of softens the heart so that I can listen to you and you can listen to me. Because in class or in that book chat, we had this moment where I said, oh, you're right. I agree with that point. You know, whereas, you know, in the world we're fighting, you know, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, or Black Lives, you know, we're doing that and no one's listening to each other. But in great books, there is no Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, it's just humanity. It's just, let's just talk about what is virtue. So what classics does is it takes us away from that world into this time period that none of us has anything to do with. It strips us of all of our biases, it strips us of all of our political views, And we're having this meaningful conversation around a beautiful text.
1: Final question for you If there's just one single text, if there's one book that has influenced you the most, what is it? um, Why did it influence you so much?
2: I I have to answer that with two Um, The Autobiography of Frederick Douglass and um, um, W.B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk were the the two. I have because they were, I kind of almost inhaled both of them at the same time. W. B. Du Bois's um, Souls of Black Folk. I mean, that whole collection of essays. He's just talking about classical education so explicitly. You know, what I mean, like the other books I read, you can tell that they're doing it because of the books they say they're reading. But Du Bois talks about classical education as a philosophy, even saying words like trivium, quadrivium, and saying that this is the education that we need. And he's so beautiful because he's co-founder of the NAACP. The, the the amount of work he put into our education and progress here, you know, he's such gives such strong evidence of the power of these books, even for our people.
1: You know, CLT, we're, we're kind of weird as a company. We start every morning actually reading out loud together, and uh, the the past quarter, our theme uh, has been anchored, and then we've been reading. Souls of Black Folk. And you actually came in and you were the guest speaker uh, and you kicked off uh, the quarter for us. And uh, after that, you know, we, we were so excited to, to get in that. It's a heavy read. I, you know, I think every day it's, we have to kind of rip ourselves away from this conversation that we all want to have so badly.
2: Du Bois's book probably has, uh, and then his uh, essay on the training of Black men, where he just lists the importance of reading classics and how they are an escape for us. Um, I could totally identify with
1: that. Dr. Prather, Anika, this has been a delight to, to, to sit down with you. You're doing big things. I, I'm thrilled. If you're not already, follow Anika on Twitter. In fact, follow her and put the little bell on, on her so you get a notification when she
0: tweets something because
1: what she has to say is important. Uh, America needs it to hear it for sure. So
0: thank you.
2: Thank you for having
1: me.
0: Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Join us next week when we'll be visited by Dr. Michael Polyakov, President of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. CLT, Reconnecting Knowledge and Virtue.